Hello and welcome to another episode of our Brothers Creed podcast, where we talk about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We are the Thomas Brothers, brothers, and I'm Jared. And I'm Ethan. And today we're going to be talking about chivalry. We're going to be talking about the, the warrior's code of the knights. That's uh, right. A couple, uh, I don't know, I say a couple episodes back, maybe 30 episodes <laughs> back, we did, uh, we talked about the samurai code of Bushido. That was a patreon episode did we release that one yeah yeah we did oh yeah that was a good and um it was a patreon episode but then we actually we released it a couple months later to the to our our all of our listeners um but yeah we kind of talked about some of that that warrior code uh and then jared and i were talking about knights in the medieval times and and we we're like man let's talk about chivalry that was yeah. kind of like the the warrior's code of the the medieval knights yep uh so today we're going to get into that we're gonna talk about a little bit of the history and what it is uh, and maybe a little bit about chivalry today. Yeah, let's dive in. All right, let's do it. Spartans, what is your profession? Any man who must say I am the king is no true king. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. Let us all unite! Let us fight for a new world! A decent world! So the Code of Chivalry goes back many, many moons, and, and it has so many facets, and it's involved in many different ways from the year, you know, 1170 AD, all the way up until kind of right before World War I. Uh, well, right at World War One. So uh, the code of like, first of all, we'll just talk about what is it? The code of chivalry is kind of a, is a moral system which went beyond the rules of combat and introduced concepts of chivalrous conduct qualities idealized by the medieval knights, such as bravery, courtesy, honor, uh, and great gallantry towards women. So the code of chivalry also incorporated notions of uh, courtly love. The code of chivalry was uh, the honor code of the knight. The code of chivalry was also important part of the society and lives of people who lived during the medieval times and was uh, understood by all. So chivalry was actually developed by the French uh, around the mid-12th century, but adopted its structure in kind of a, uh, in a European context. Uh, they actually also had heavily influenced uh culture from the Arabs. The Arabs actually uh, conquered right at the bottom part of Spain, the the Andalusian uh, peninsula, kind of the bottom part of Spain there. The Arabs had conquered that, and they had this very notion of chivalry and and knighthood and, and this kind of thing. So that really influenced the culture. And so chivalry means horsemanship in Old French. So the French word... Uh, chevalier or originally meant a man aristocratic stand a man of aristocratic stand, standing and probably a noble ancestry who is capable of if called upon of equipping himself with a war horse and arms of heavily cavalrymen and who has been through certain rich rituals and make that make him what he is you know, so therefore during the middle ages the plural chevalier uh, transform into English into the word chivalry, originally denoted by the body of heavily, heavy cavalry, cavalry upon formation in the field. English In English, the term appears in 19, 1292. Uh, note that cavalry is from the Italian word from the same word. So, same form of the word. So cavalry. We talked cavalry, about that. Yeah. Cavalry, Ca- cavalry, the <laughs> horseback, hard, yes, horseback, horseback uh, uh, troops. That's that one's hard to say. Uh, most people say cavalry. I think we had that argument. Yeah, we once. did have. <laughs> we we had that discussion. That was a uh, Hatfield and McCoy's. I think. No, no, it wasn't. That was we were talking about. Um, oh, that was Spartacus. Spartacus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the code can basically be broken down into three major parts, and we're going to talk more about this. But there's first of all the duties. To to countrymen and fellow Christians. So this contains virtues such as mercy, courage, valor, fairness, protection of the weak and the poor, and in the servanthood of the knight to his lord. 
This also brings with the idea of being willing to give one's life for another's, whether he would be giving his life for a poor man or his Lord. So the second kind of category here is duties to God. This would contain certain being faithful to God, protecting the innocent, being faithful to the church, uh, being the champion of good against evil, being generous and obeying God above the feudal lords. And the third one is duties to women. Uh, this is a prob- this is probably the most familiar aspect of chivalry. Uh, this would contain what is often called courtly love, the idea that the knight is to serve a lady, and after her all other la- and after her all was after her all other ladies, uh, most especially in the category in general gentleness, graciousness to all women. So, this I think that's that's a lot of times where kind of the uh, the rem- the re- it was so romanticized, right? And, mm-hmm. and a lot of these uh, historical uh, accounts that we have of of chivalry and of knighthood were actually written down by clergymen, and they were almost written in in poems and songs, and maybe potentially dramatized a little bit, yeah, um, and, and and fantasized a little bit. And so I think that's kind of the, one of the one of the where a lot of that comes from. Yeah, one of the ones here is the Code of Chivalry was documented in an epic poem called The Song of Roland. The Song of Roland describes the 8th century king of the Dark Ages and the battles fought by the Emperor Charlemagne. The code has since been described as Charlemagne's Code of Chivalry. The Song of Roland was written between 1098 and 1100 and describes the betrayal of of Count Roland at the hand of Ganelon. Roland was a loyal defender of his liege lord Char- Charlemagne, and his code of conduct became understood as a code of chivalry. The code of chivalry described in the Song of Roland and the excellent representations of the knights' code of uh, chivalry are as follows. And Ethan's going to talk about some of these uh, these codes that came out of that song. Yeah, so <clears throat> uh, really it's kind of this this idea of of medieval knightly system of chivalry uh, is kind of broken into what I felt was kind of religious, moral, and then a so and social code. Um, and uh, by some definitions, it was more of a uh, uh, more of a guideline, right? <laughs> yeah. It was more of a suggestion, and it was kind of it wasn't particularly written down maybe and I'm sure you had some knights that uh, kind of opposed some of these uh, chivalrous traits um, but then other defend others defended it as specifically these are the qualifications that are required to become a knight um, and you would lose your knighthood if you you know abandon these these uh, these qualifications or, or, or these standards uh, it makes me think of uh, the the story of Lancelot, right, in King Arthur's court, he came in and and stole Guinevere away yeah. away from uh, uh, King Arthur. Some kind of you know adulterous adulterous relationship with Guinevere, um, uh, and that wasn't very chivalrous, right? Well, yeah, that's actually interesting. I was looking into that. That was one of the so there was a lot of literature about knights and chivalry and this romantic nature around it, and it was very prolific during the Middle Ages. Even up to to today, I mean, you get all these old stories like, you know, Rapunzel or Sleeping Beauty or these different things where the knight comes and saves the woman, and he's just a chivalrous, you know, he uses his military prowess, yeah, uh, to do that. And so with Lancelot, it's kind of a weird thing because it's it's like he's not being chivalrous, but he's also he's putting her his love for her above all else, which and, is chivalrous, and which right? is chivalrous, and, and they, it's kind their, of a, their love was you know, overcome all, overcame all. and Yeah, so it's kind of a weird thing. And so they were kind of saying, well, he even though he was in an, an extramarital affair, he was very in love and treated her with so much respect. And like, you know, there's one story of where he finds one of his her golden hairs and he wants to look at it so closely that he literally is like poking his eyes with the, her hair because he's just so much in love with her. <laughs> and so it's kind of a funny thing that... Uh, that sounds like hyperbole. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 interesting uh, that that code uh, really was uh, in the medieval era was understood to be a set of rules that were not only uh, on the battlefield but also beyond combat uh, that should be that should be held 
you know, within society, but as well as on the battlefield, there were certain things yeah. that you were supposed to and not supposed to do. Uh, so some of these, some of these vows of knighthood are. Let's see. So the first one is fear God and His church. Second maintain, one and maintain His church. Yeah, and maintain yeah. His and yeah. maintain His church. And then uh, second one is uh, serve the liege lord in valor and faith. And we're talking about. Lord, there. I don't think they're talking about Lord God. No, they're talking the, about the, the your liege lord. Yeah. So, like my liege, the lord of uh, whoever the they're serving, or, the yeah, king yeah. or whoever else. Um, the next is to protect the weak and defenseless, live by honor and for glory, and then the last one is respect and honor women. Uh, these were kind of the the five ones that were the the vows of knighthood, and there's lots of different. Uh, aspects and, and attributes that these knights had specifically. Uh, and I'm going to get a little bit more into here. Jared was talking about the uh, uh, La Chevaliers, uh, were kind of chival- the word where chivalry came from, that ancient French uh, aspect to it. They, they give a, a, a popular summary of this ancient code in something that's called the Ten Commandments of Chivalry. Before you jump into the Ten Commandments of Chivalry, okay. I just wanted to mention two, a couple of the ones from the, the Song of Roland that I thought okay, were good. Okay, yeah, do it. Never turn your back to a foe. Nice. Never refuse a challenge from an equal. Uh, and then I think it's interesting. It says uh, ref- to refrain from wanton giving of offense. I th- I've just been thinking about that. What does that mean? That means just like offending people for just like no reason. Just being a jerk. Just being a jerk. Like don't be an a-hole, you know, basically. Um, g- to guard the honor of fellow knights also is a one. It's like, so you know, you're in this brotherhood, a Masonic brotherhood, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah episode. <laughs> Probably will. They were Knights Templar, Episode right? 67. <laughs> yeah, so um, very interesting. Uh, those were a couple of the ones I, I liked. Yeah, so the Ten Commandments, actually a couple of those are in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments of chivalry include the following commandments. So one is believe the church's teachings and observe all of the church's directions. Uh, two is defend the church. I think it's really interesting how closely it is related with the Christian church at that time. Um, yeah. It, it's just really interesting, that, that relationship. So number three is, well, a lot of those through the Crusades. Yeah. And so yeah. there was very heavily steeped in that because it was not just about being in battle, but it was about being a, a, a good, good Christian. Yeah. Well, we haven't even we haven't even mentioned it. I mean, this is a Brothers Creed podcast. Uh, I mean, th- these are like basically tenets of of building. A, this is a creed. I mean, yeah, this is absolutely. this is their credo. This is the creed of the of the knights. Um, the, the creed of chivalry. I mean, the, the cer- certain of these aspects, I think all of them can be potentially good, but certain of these aspects can can help us to build our own personal creeds. And that's why we're exploring this. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah this is the, the reason. So number three is uh, respect and defend the weak. Number four is love your country. Number five is do not fear your enemy. Number six is show no mercy and do not hesitate to make war with the infidel. <laughs> I think that's where, the Ar- or that's where the Arabic influence comes in, you know, a little bit. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Don't hesitate to, you know, show no mercy, don't hesitate to make war uh, with the infidel. So number seven is perform all your feudal duties as long as they do not conflict with the laws of God. Uh, I thought this was interesting in talking about kind of like the laws of the land versus the laws of God. And so it's saying perform all of your duties unless they conflict with a higher law. You know, maybe the, you know, the spirit of the law or something that's yeah. that, you know, if you don't feel that something is right in, 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 in God's eyes, then even if it's legal on paper or if you're maybe you're a police officer and you are supporting something that is uh, not, you know, th- th- that maybe is taking away people's rights or freedoms, you know? Yeah. So I th- just that was kind of an interesting yeah. comparison there. Number eight is never lie or go back uh, yeah. on one's word. Well, what you said, to, well, go going back to the prior one, is like also it had said previously that their loyalty is to God and his church even above your liege lord. Mm-hmm. And so like we talk about, you know, people have... The, they they are you know police officers 
our members of the armed services, they say you know, they, they promise to defend the Constitution, but, uh, you know, and even then beyond that, God himself, and so, you know, that makes you question, like, well, when people go up, if, you, if, the, if you're in the Army, you're a police officer, and you're going around and doing some of this stuff that you're like, well, I totally disagree with this, but, you know, i got to make a living. It's like, okay, well, you're you're giving up like you're not living by that by that this yeah. th- you're not living by this creed and that which, is and that is such a hard place to be in am i going to am i going to you know play am i just going to go with the flow and and keep my job and my career and everything else or am i going to fight against something that i feel is not right that's hard yeah absolutely um but fighting against fighting fighting like fighting Choosing to go along with something is, I think, different. Than, well, then not fighting against. Then also been fighting for that thing. Too. It can be. It can be. It can be a passive, or uh, you can be an active player in it. Yeah, too. you can. You can. It could be passive rebellion, or it could be active rebellion. So, uh, like, if you're going over, if you're the police officer, and you're going over to people's houses, giving them tickets because their kids they were, were mowing playing, their lawn their without were, a mask on. Or, yeah, their kids were playing with the, at the neighbor's house, uh, and not, everybody's supposed to be quarantined. It's like, well, who do you serve? You know, like. Yeah, is this is this, you know, is this the type of obedience that, who's your master, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, um, interesting. So next one is never lie or go back on one's word. Number nine, be generous. And number ten, always and everywhere be right and good against evil and injustice. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the ten commandments of yeah chivalry. I like that, and th- there's another list I have here that's more like the the scout, uh, you know, uh, scout, the scout law. Scout law. Yeah. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly. Those kind of attributes. So in this one, you could say a knight is has faith, charity, justice, Sadducee. I'm not sure what that is. Anyway, it's in here. Maybe they go. I wonder if it goes back to like the Sadducees. Like, uh, I don't know, obedience of some way. Maybe uh, prudence. Temperance, resolution, truth, liberty, diligence, hope, valor. Those are all great things. Yeah. Very cool. Um, those were from the, the Duke of Burgundy. Ron Burgundy. That's right. He made those. So I, I want to talk about a little about the end of chivalry. Okay. Well, what's, what's pers- the end of this knight era of chivalry? So the practice of like knighthood started to die out and, and kind of in the 1480s, late 1480s was the end of the Middle Ages. And that's when they really started to train infantrymen uh, to be more on the front lines of the battle as opposed to knights. And, uh, you know, during the, well, this was obviously well before World War I. Uh, but during the 19th century, they tried to have like a revival of this code of chivalry and knighthood. Um, the first... German, uh, and one of the interesting things is uh, a sword is always uh, associated with um, knighthood. So one of the things about knighthood that I'll talk about in a little bit is martial prowess. Martial prowess. So martial meaning like warfare. It's like martial law, right? Yeah. So And then prowess is like your your abilities, abilities your, your, your great abilities. And so martial prowess was a very big part of chivalry, and it was like, oh, romanticized, you know? So uh, a sword was kind of a, a, a part of that martial prowess. And uh, interesting, the first German killed in World War I was by a British cavalry sword. Uh, so they, they tried to bring back, uh, like I said, the, the, the knights and chivalry and whatnot uh, following World War I, but many of the popular feelings about war had, you know, that, that dynamic had changed as a, material reflection of this process, the dress sword lost its position as an indispensable part of a gentleman's wardrobe. Uh, A development described as an archaeological terminus by Edward uh, Oakshot as it concluded the long period during which the sword had been a visible attribute of a free man beginning as early as three millennia ago with the Bronze Age sword. I love that. That the sword was it's a symbol a of a visible free man. attribute of a free man. That's cool. And so these dress swords, uh, they're still used t- 
today, uh, you'll you notice that in many military ceremonies, um, they will have uh, dress swords. I have, for some reason, a I got it from Grandpa when he died, a uh, Marine Corps dress sword replica. Replica. Well, I mean, it's it, it is it's a dress sword, so it's not really. I mean, it's it can be used. During, it's a ceremonial. I guess a, a dress a, a dress sword probably isn't like it's not used battle, battle ready. It's not used. In, some of them could be used in battle. Most of the modern ones are not made to be used in battle. They're only made to look nice. Um, but they're you know kind of interesting that whole uh you know, swords and how they were no longer used because. Know, a gentleman wasn't someone that was on the front line. Those are the grunts. And Wouldn't so that be cool if it's like, um, in the, it's like, if if that was in, in modern day, it's like part of your prom ensemble is like a, a sword, <laughs> your sword, like a dress sword. That'd be cool. Right, that'd be cool. That'd be awesome. But you you think about like in the Wild West, you know, you had your holsters. Well, that's you true. Had your guns I mean, it was your kind holsters. of the sign of a free man, right? It, it was the sign of free men, and so. Uh, you know, that's interesting. Uh, I, I like that uh, kind of revival, and then I love that uh, you know image of uh, being a symbol of a free man. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a story that was really interesting. Um, there is a guy. There's a guy named John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming Churchill. Oh, that's a mouthful. Yeah. So he was. Um, a British army officer who fought in the second world war. So this is like, you know, uh, what mid, Oh, didn't he storm Normandy yeah. with a sword? So in he, hand? so he fought world in world war two with a longbow, bagpipes and a Scottish broadsword. <laughs> and so he actually had, there's a picture where he, he, you could see him, uh, storming. I think it might've been Normandy, uh, but storming the the beach with a sword in his hand. Yeah, like dude, during World War Two, <laughs> where the Germans are shooting machine guns at you. Yeah, and you're running out the beach with a sword, dude. That's 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 awesome. I can't. I don't know whether that's like incredibly foolish or incredibly badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was that was kind of cool. He he died in the, in 1996. Wow, 96. Yeah. He must have been young a young lad then. Yeah, well, he was a, he was an officer. I mean, so when was World War Two? I mean, World War Two was the forties, late mid forties. And so, if he was you know twenty years old, then he would have been seventy, eighty in ninety yeah. six. Interesting. Or maybe if he lived until you know he was ninety, a hundred years old, then he would have been thirty. Yeah, forty. Well, ninety six. When I think ninety six, I think that's like five years ago. Yeah, that's I mean, true. like that, that was, was really like we were like under ten years old. Yeah, that was so long ago. So it's weird how time is. You know, that was what thirty years ago that yeah so well, no not quite but almost i have a story here so this is uh uh one of the romance novels that so like i, I said they would write a lot of stories about uh knights and chivalry knights and so there was uh some these names i'm gonna butcher but uh some of there's a, a writer called de troyes uh his romances were pretty straightforward and to the point uh, but in one of them uh, he would that would kind of qualify as a romantic uh, caution uh, of knights neglecting their chivalric duties uh, in Eric and Endie uh, a young knight named Eric is E-R-E-C that's why I'm saying it weird uh, Eric I don't know is so in love with his young wife that he cannot tear himself away from his marital bed hmm. serious problems there he forgoes his martial prowess, which is what I spoke about earlier, your military prowess or power, entirely too, entirely too occupied to go to fight as a, as a knight should. However, by neglecting his prowess, he loses his reputation. He puts in danger his wife's love for him, and the rest of the romance consists of, like the story, consists of the adventures he undertakes to regain his prowess, which equals the love of his wife. Uh, the hero achieves the right balance in his life between love of fighting and the love of a woman to whom he has dedicated himself. So interesting. It's kind of being out of balance, uh, and then he he refines that balance in his duty. I wonder if um, there's a certain aspect of uh, martial prowess nowadays that is maybe not considered so much 
um, physically carrying a weapon, but being able to handle yourself in physical situations. Yeah. Whether that's training in certain martial arts or, uh, you know, I don't know. I just kind of thought that, that when you're talking about martial prowess, that kind of popped into my head. Well, yeah. I like, I think I, there's a quote that says something in like, I don't know, maybe Jordan Peterson said that like, the man who is incapable of harming another man is not um, virtuous in any way. It's the man who is capable of harming another person, but who but decides to control himself is virtuous. Yeah. Um, I think I've seen that before. So, okay, go ahead. I was yes, just going to say uh, another one that I had was uh, Sir William Wallace. He was a knight? Yeah. So he, uh, so this is the, the story, well, Let's say uh, Braveheart is loosely um, based off of, of off of William Wallace, right? Uh, William Wallace was a, a Scottish knight and national hero who fought uh, his country's independence. He fought for his country's independence against England, uh, and Scotland was his country, right? The English and the Scottish were always at odds, going back and forth, and um, this was uh, there was massive wars at this time. Um, but his his first attack of note was against the the Lanark in Scotland, which was a uh, an English stronghold. There was an English sheriff there who was killed during uh, this revenge of the mistreatment of William Wallace's wife, Marin. And so the the English sheriff at that at that specific location, it was a, a English stronghold in Scotland, had. Um, mistreated William Wallace's wife, and so in defense of of women, right, which is a knightly thing, he went and he gathered men and he attacked the uh, the stronghold, and somehow the sheriff just ended up dying, <laughs> right? And that and was probably so, the point all along, right? <laughs> yeah, and so um, and that's according to legend, right? There's some legend around that, but basically after several great uh, triumphs of battle between William Wallace and his men. Uh, William was actually knighted by Robert the Bruce, who was the future king of Scotland at the time. Um, And so that's when he became Sir William Wallace. And uh, he was actually deemed, uh, he became what was, quote-unquote, the guardian of the Scottish government. Um, Hmm. Until later on, he was, uh, there was some different things that went on, betrayals and things like that from Scottish uh, Scottish, uh, uh, not royalty, but kind of um, uh, nobility to the English and different things, and he ended up getting captured and then drawn and quartered and and all that all that good stuff uh, by the English. But just an interesting story about how it kind of started off as he was, you know, living this this code of conduct and su- conduct and support of the independence of his country. Yeah. Right. One of the ones we talked about before is, you know, number f- commandment number four in the 10 commandments of chivalry is, is love of your country. And, uh, and he did that and he, and he, uh, used his martial prowess to yeah. support the honor or defend the honor of his wife who had been, yeah, who'd been insulted in the movie. She got killed. Yeah. I don't know if she was killed in, in real life, but hmm. So this the story that I have is kind of a cool story and it's a cool concept that I like and it's echoed in many other cultures around the world. <clears throat> so have you ever heard of the Oriflame? Uh, yes, but I would not be able to tell you what it was. So it is an, a multi-level marketing company, but that's not the one I'm talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the Oriflame is a pointed blood red banner uh, with flown from like a gilded lance. It's like a golden lance. Uh, was a blood red banner like a like a pointed like triangle? It's a, like it's a, a triangle that points down and it has multiple points, so it's like okay. multiple triangles. And uh, the it was a battle standard of the King of France in the Middle Ages. It was used as a sacred banner in warfare, and the legend goes that the banner was born by Charlemagne himself in the whole. Bo- he he had it not born. It was born as in it was shown Created by Charlemagne. Or, yeah, born held. Uh, in the Holy Land, and when he conquered, uh, so when the Oriflame was raised in battle by a French royalty during the Middle Ages, most nobility um, during the so there was like a period during, called the Hundred Year Wars. Uh, so 
it, when they would raise this banner, it meant that no prisoners were to be taken until it was lowered. So it was basically saying its red color being a symbol of cruelty and ferocity. Uh, through it, this tactic, they were hoped to strike fear into the hearts of the enemy, especially the nobles, who could usually expect to be taken alive for ransom during some military encounters. It's kind of like the, uh, I've seen this on different places and social media stuff. It's like the black flag. No right? quarter. It's no quarter given. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what it was. Is no quarter. We will, There's no mercy here. And so it's very feared. If you saw this banner, there's no surrender. No, you know, you're dead. Uh, so the bearer of the standard was called the Porte Oriflame. Uh, became an office and a great honor as it was an important and a very dangerous job to take charge of such a visible symbol in the battle. If things went badly, the bear was expected to die rather than than relinquish his charge. So, um, you know, this was obviously, if you saw this thing being raised in battle, you wanted to take that thing out. Um, You don't want to let your flag fall. Uh, So this stories about the the story of Geoffrey de Charny, or de Carney, I'll say. The follow, he was considered the perfect knight uh, at the time. Sir Geoffrey de Carney, he lived from 1300 to 1356, was considered the perfect French knight. His loyalty, martial prowess, and other military achievements made him a true perfect knight. Geoffrey de Carney had once written that he, quote, he who achieves more is more worthy. I don't know if I entirely agree with that, but that was what he uh, he espoused. Um, in his last battle, at the it was the Battle of the po- Poitiers between England and French in 1356. Uh, and he, he, at the age of 55, he was the standard bearer standard bearer for the sacred silken oriflame, and he was forced to fight to the death holding it alongside the king and the king's son. So uh, this is kind of a scene that was, the scene was described by one, you know, in the history books, this is how it was described. Uh, there, Sir Joffrey de Carney fought gallantly near the king uh, and also the king's 14-year-old son. Uh, the whole press and cry of battle were upon him because he was carrying the king's sovereign banner, the Oriflame. He had, he also had before him his own banner, uh, Ghouls and Estutions Argent, I should think were more like family crests. Uh, so many English and the, and the Gascons came around him from all sides that they cracked open the king's battle formation and smashed it. There were so many English and Gascons that at least five of them, these men at arms, attacked one of French gentlemen's sir joffrey de carney was killed with a banner in his of france in his hand as the other french banner fell to the earth so he died so holding he could, that he banner he couldn't let it go couldn't let it go because it was you know he, he basically died serving and, and holding that banner until his last day so when you think about the importance of a banner and i think this is you know when you talk about a personal creed or, or a banner, what does that mean to you? And you know, we think about the Star-Spangled Banner. We, we sing that song when we, when, when was it, uh, Francis Scott Key woke up and he saw that the banner was still waving and the, the banner was still up. What, what was that a symbol of? And that those men said, we will not let that banner fall. Yeah. Or you, you, I also like the, the terminology of a, uh, of a standard. Yeah. Right? It's, it's the standard bearer, right? Yeah. The person that holds the flag, that holds the ba- the banner. And that's... I mean, standard. Those are this, this is someone's standards. That's what they live by. What they die by. Exactly. Or uh, you think about the Roman eagles and how sacred those Roman eagles were. The golden eagle. When they, you know, they lost some of them, uh, and it was so coveted, or, or it was such a, a shame to lose those. You know, there's a that they lost one in Britannica, basically, and then they went go find it. You know, and so uh, very interesting. I think it's. That, I think, is an example of the nice chivalry because he lived by his code, um, and he ended up dying with that banner in hand, dying for what he believed in. 
I, I think, I mean, I can see where you can maybe see it the other way, where he's like a 55-year-old man. He's kind of cushy. He's standing next to the king. You know, who would have thought that the battle would have come that far? But, you know, when the time, when came, the time came, he fought. You know, it was kind of like uh, Sir Jorel of Mormont, you know, fighting right next to Khaleesi <laughs> till the bitter end. Til the you last know? minute, yeah. Oh, spoiler alert, by the way. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Ruined that one. Uh, so yeah. I, I, do have, I do have one more story here, but I want to hear yours. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, one other one that I had was, um, and actually this is a, a example of chivalry uh, from a woman. So this one that I had was Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't know a whole bunch about Joan of Arc, but she was nicknamed the Maid of Orleans. Um, and so she was considered a, a heroine of France in her role during the Hundred Year War yep. between France and England. Um, she was also later named a saint, which is interesting as well. Uh, so Joan of Arc, uh, she she was young, so she said that she received visions from the Archangel Michael, Saint Margaret, and Saint Catherine of Alexandria, instructing her that she should go to Charles the the seventh, and so who was the 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 upcoming king of France and support him in uh, his recovery of France from English domination. And so she went to the king, or the the the, the to be king. Mm-hmm. He hadn't been um, christened yet or whatever. He 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 was going to be king. She was like seventeen years old and he was twenty six. And so she goes to him and she says, you know, I had these visions and I'm here to help you and yada yada. And so he goes, okay, well, we have, we've been trying to attack this city of Orleans for a long time, and we, we, we need reinforcements. So that he sent reinforcements, and she uh, was part of those reinforcements. Um, and they, they went to the city, and because of some of her uh, strategies and, and uh, orders, they were able to take the, take the city. Uh, that and then kind of in the next couple years, there was some additional swift victories that led to uh, Charles VII ended up eventually leading to his consecration as king. Um, but a couple of things I didn't really, uh, and she she was pivotal in all of those those victories hmm. and, and really kind of the, the fighting off of English dominance uh, in, in France. And so a couple of the things that I thought was interesting is that uh, she was remembered as a fearless warrior of the Hundred Year War, but she never actually fought in battle or killed an opponent, uh, which is kind of interesting. Well, didn't you just say she was part of the battle to conquer the city? So she was, but was really interesting. And when you when you see like movies and stuff like that, she's always like carrying a sword and fighting and stuff like that. But it says instead she would accompany her men as a sort of inspirational mascot. And she would brandish her banner in the place of a weapon. So she was kind of like the standard bearer. Huh. And she would go into battle, but she uh, she wasn't like actively fighting and attacking and charging the ladder, you know, charging the walls and stuff like that. But she was in the midst of the fight. Um, she was most mostly responsible for outlining military strategies and directing troops and uh, also one thing that she was pivotal in was diplomatic solution proposing diplomatic solutions to the english which the english didn't accept any of them but she was she was in like the political diplomatic area hmm. so this was for the next 2 years so when she was 19 she was captured and then they ended up burning her at the stake and yada 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 really? uh, <laughs> yeah so uh, one thing that was interesting though is that she never actually like fought in battle but she was wounded twice uh, it said despite her her normal distance from the front lines, she was wounded twice, once taking an arrow to the shoulder during the Battle of Orleans, and then also next she took a crossbow bolt to the thigh during another battle. Ouch. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting. I, I yeah. think I think it's it, it's a, a she was so young, right? But she just commanded this leadership that people followed her. And she sounds like a mystic leadership as well. Kind yeah, of like she, a religious yeah. Leader or yeah, because she had, had she had had some of these she had had some of these visions. She 
at least she said she did, you know, and she had the support from the to be king that he sent her out to to help uh, win these victories, and she did. Um, she was pivotal. It's kind of interesting. It's funny what what kind of things you know. We've talked about lots of different things that motivate people in the heat of battle, like you know the Battle of Island Wano. I talked about the the solar eclipse and how it made the the Zulu warriors even more ferocious, or like you know a religious leader that's uh, there egging them on, or a standard bearer of the the ore flame that goes up, and they know that this is it, and their enemies just cower. So it's like this mix of intimidation and inspiration and and you know the samurais and their masks to scare the enemy and you know yeah it's just wild how many different ways there are to inspire intimidate and you know win a battle yeah for sure but i thought it was a cool story yeah it's a cool story so one of the ones i have here this is kind of a fun one uh well the other ones are fun but this is kind of a, a silly one but this guy don pero niao uh i think that's how you spell his name sound his name but he he uh was kind of a, a a character he first joined in his first taste of battle was at age 15. This is in the year 1378 to 1453. Uh, so over the course of a long career, he would fight against the Portuguese, the North African Muslims, uh, the English, uh, carrying out constant raids along the south coast of England and Jersey. Uh, he would typically use a crossbow when not at sea, but then he would often show off his talents with a lance as a formidable jouster, earning his such uh, celebrity status that he managed to successfully woo the widow of a recently deceased admiral of France. So in 1403, he was wounded in battle and suffered an, uh, and he was he, he was wounded on his leg, and he refused to abandon the campaign. He's like, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave. So soon thereafter, that when they arrived back to Spain, uh, his leg wound had started to fester, and the doctors recommend, recommended that if if we need to amputate your leg, if you want to survive. So Don Pero Niao, however, ref, refused. Instead, he asked that they cauterize the wound, singeing the flesh with a white hot iron. Instead, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the surgeon agreed but at the last moment refused to perform the procedure, not wanting to inflict the degree of pain they knew it would cause. But Peroniao, by now, was a master of inflicting and sustaining physical pain, grabbed the iron from him, and applied it to himself, rubbing it up and down the length of his leg. (laughs) Imagine that. He spent the latter years of his life, apart from being... Uh, brief interlude of being exiled, serving the Spanish monarch- monarchy, and added a remarkably old age for a knight who had lived so rashly. So it worked. Yeah, it worked. Keeps his legs. Crazy, right? Massive burn marks. Yeah, but I don't have a bunch of scars and no leg at all, right? Yeah, because that probably would have been just as threatened, life-threatening than the, the issue at hand. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty... Huh. That's pretty... Wow, brave, I guess, to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think so. some of these guys are tough, man. I mean, it's yeah. just, living then was just so much harder, too. I mean, it was, they didn't have the same luxuries that we have today. They didn't have, I don't know, central yeah. air yeah. and heat and air, you know. They didn't have all the, the cushy mattresses and everything else. I mean, it was just different lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, but I guess you get used to anything. Yeah, then I was. You watching, don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. I was watching that one when I was re- not when I was reading this. I was thinking about that scene in Lost. Remember when uh, Charlie gets hit in the head? Uh, one of the own character he gets hit in the head by something. I think it was by a character named Ethan because they were they yeah. discovered that he was one of the others, <laughs> and uh, so the they, others. Were, they were trying to find him, and, and then so he wakes up and he's like, "Oh man!" And he got this giant gash in his forehead, and they're like, "Oh, you got to go back." He's like, "I'm not going back," and so. The doctor, Jack, he takes a bullet, he takes it apart. No, I think it was John Locke who did this. And he pours it into, he pours the all the gunpowder in, in there. And he goes, he lights it and it goes, and it burns, in his, it burns his head. I don't know if that would exactly work because I think the wound would probably wet the gunpowder. Actually, I saw there's a, you know, that one uh, survival show, Dual Survival? Yeah. Where it has the one kind of like a military guy and then the other is like kind of like a hippie guy. Uh, yeah. yeah, like naturalist. a survivalist, and that naturalist guy. Well, the one military guy, he wants to to prove that you can do that, uh-huh. and so he actually like takes his forearm and he cut like a 
three inch gash in his forearm and he dumped the gunpowder in there and he did it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure. I imagine that would leave a mean scar though. Oh yeah. I'm sure he would have massive. He probably, probably went to the hospital and got it taken care of whenever <laughs> got they got back up. from filming, but <laughs> filming, but yeah. But anyway, yeah, that was, I remember that. So but. the last thing I want to talk about with chivalry, uh, I wanted to quickly talk about modern day chivalry. Right, you've probably heard the quote a million times: "Chivalry is dead." Right, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people like to say that. I don't think it is. I think maybe some of the the aspects of chivalry has changed. I think um, there's lots of groups that uh, it's really confusing. Let's say some of these like feminist groups are like you know. we don't need we don't need man for anything or yada yada and then you know I, I remember I I opened a door for a lady one time and she was like I can do it myself. It's just like yeah okay. And I I one time I didn't open the door for someone I just you know we were we were walking out I just kind of pushed the door open and expected her to kind of also put her hand yeah. out was when you were walking and then she didn't so the door kind of closed on her and she's like oh my gosh why didn't you hold the door for me and i was like yeah how dare you yeah it, it, it's it so is it's like what are we supposed to do it is so confusing that's kind of what i wanted to talk about is it's like this you know we've talked about this several times on the on the podcast of this toxic masculinity or whatever else and i think part of masculinity is chivalry and it is doing the it is i mean men are literally built to be defenders. We are defenders of those who are not as strong. And uh, and I'm just going to come out and say it, on average, women are not as strong and as big as men are. And so that's why typically men are the defenders. And um and it's not to be to belittle anyone. I think that's just how. Well, the, know, also it's like kind of defenders of beauty. That's part of the sh- yeah. code of chivalry as well. And like respecter of beauty and and yeah and so i i think there's a couple things you know this chivalry is defined um by these qualities held by these knights as as being gentlemen offering courage and honor and protecting women i think all those things are such good things uh but they kind of get lost and it's just so confusing nowadays because back then that was like expected Mm -hmm. but now it's like you, you run into strangers in the street and it's like well do i open the door for them or do i not open the door for them like, are they going to feel like I, are they going to get triggered or offended because I'm trying to do something, um, you know, that, that they could do for themselves or whatever else? And it's just a very confusing time. Yeah, I think it also depends on the part of the country you're in. I think it definitely does. In the South, I have not run into that very much. No. But when you're in more like honestly liberal areas, liberal areas. people are going to be people are going to say weird stuff like that. Or or you know, I've seen you know military men in uh, you know government questioning situations and then they said yes ma'am yes ma'am and you know don't call me ma'am you better call me sir and he's just like uh okay yeah he's uh, like but you're a woman i'm gonna call you ma'am because that's a respectful sir. thing yeah, but like yeah well yeah. it's like we, you know we grew up saying yes ma'am and no ma'am and i remember i had one of my friends uh i think i've shared the story before but um they were from the north they, they moved down from new york and he was in my class and we kind of became friends and stuff and his his uh, parents took me home from school one day and I got in the car and his mom was like, you know, hey, do you need me to, to uh, or, you know, are you comfortable back there or, or do, do I need to scoop my seat up? And I was like, yeah. And, and I said, uh, uh, yes, ma'am, or something like that. She asked me a question. I said, yes, ma'am. And and his dad was like, oh, man, that is so awesome. That is so cool. You say yes, ma'am. And he's like, you look at my friend, you need to learn from this guy and everything else. And it was just <laughs> like, because it's, it's a show of respect. Um but uh, a couple things that I just had pointed out, and this is some examples I found online, you know, a man who stands in front of his wife and child during a robbery is an example of chivalry, mm-hmm. right? Are there some men that would maybe cower behind their wives? I think there is, um, you know, or a, a man who opens his date's car door, you know, is an example of chivalry. And it's just a respect of, of, of women. Um, and, and I think too, it can be a respect of if you're walking out, you can hold the door for another man. I think that's chivalrous too. It's kind of like that, yeah, knight, yeah. that knight's code, defending the honor of someone else's knighthood. Your fellow knight, yeah. Um, so the last example that I had was, uh, kind of, uh, you were talking about bringing chivalry back and we had a whole episode where we talked about the Boy Scouts of America program 
And that was one of the the goals of the the guy who uh, founded the the scouting for boys is what they called it, but it f- founded this scouting program. Uh, he was a, a, a British Army Lieutenant General Robert Baden Powell, um, and he kind of founded these ideas of of instilling some of these chivalrous. Uh, attributes and tactics into everyday lives of of boys mm-hmm. and growing and i think that's definitely something i mean obviously they institute or they they included a bunch of other learning and 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 everything else that goes along with it but i think that's is another example of kind of a modern day chivalry where they're trying to bring it back um yeah and so the question is how can we apply some of these tactics and strategies of chivalry in our own personal lives and our own personal creeds and in the, the developing of our kids, our kids. Yeah. And I think some of this stuff, I, I think definitely take it, you know, some of these things obviously take it like, you know, helping to give succor to the widows and the orphans, refrain from wanting giving of offense to live by honor and for glory, you know, fighting for the welfare of all. These are all great, noble things. We've gone through these in this episode. Some of them like, you know, Killing the infidels, or uh, you know, without question, maybe that's be careful with that one. Yeah, maybe you can be a little bit careful with that one, but uh, maybe not leave that one out of your creed, or, or maybe adjust that to you know, don't let people uh, threaten my family or something like that. I think a lot of the things too, when it says like fight against this and fight against that, uh, and maybe back then it was talking specifically fighting, like physically fighting, but I think also fighting could be you know emotional fighting or fighting in, in with your vote or going to the or school board meeting and saying, you know, why are we doing this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So hopefully there's been a lot of good stuff shared in this episode that you can incorporate into your creed. I, I know that, uh, there's lots of things that inspired me and, and I think that, uh, I'd like to instill my boys, this chivalrous activity, respect for their, uh, their, f- just all mankind. Uh, and so that they can uh, be honorable men. And also to, to think about that, what's your aura flame? What is your standard that you are ready to die holding in your hand, that you're ready to fight to the last breath to hold in your hand to keep that standard high? If you if your family is, is behind you and you're fighting in a battle and you're keeping a standard up, what is it that you're going to teach until the day that you die? Uh, what, is it, what is that important to you? And that's something we should all think about. Yeah, for sure. What will you be known for? What is your creed? Yeah. Share your creed with us. We we would love to hear your creed. Yeah. Um we'd love to hear what aspects you're you you've gotten from some of our episodes and and we'd love to hear some of the ones that maybe uh you've built within your own families. Yeah. Um so share them with us. Well, thanks for listening today guys. I uh, appreciate you as as always. We always uh love feedback hearing feedback and love your comments. So, uh Follow us on the socials and let's build that crew together. All right, let's do it.